double episode today featuring the uh, animated debut of a classic Batman villain, but done in a brand new way. It's episode 18 of our show, which is looking at episodes 20 and 21 of Batman the Animated Series, Feet of Clay, chapters 1 and 2. With me, as always, is my son, writer and uh, legend in his own lifetime, Adam Ray. Good evening. Good evening. It's always a pleasure to be back talking about Batman in his finest and... As we'd expect to see in season one, we've got the clear, brilliant archetypal villains showing off in their stunning debuts, and we get, sure enough, the villain known for being changeable and uh, shifting and uncertain, Clayface himself. And forgive me, because I'm not as well-versed as you are in what is getting close to uh, five decades upon the planet of you being versed in Batman. I don't remember all of the many different kinds of Kai faces because I was always under the impression that Matt Hagen was always much more subtle in his changes and I always thought that this was much more like Basil Carl especially with the active sort of very background. well spotted well done so is this an, is this a version that somehow married the name and the background with the other look and the history of another it's very much absolutely an amalgamation of uh, of different clay faces and yeah as you said when you get writers, the talents like uh, Marv Wolfman and Michael Reeves writing the episode, Marv Wolfman obviously comics legend, Crisis on Infinite Earths, Teen Titans, and long and glorious runs on Batman, uh, they've managed to amalgamate, as you said, the original actor Basil Carlo, the original Clayface who appeared back in 1940, believe it or not, in Detective Comics issue 40. He was just, just an actor who was extremely talented, who can make voices and was just like like the the man he was uh, named after and uh, inspired by uh, Boris Karloff the yes. greatest and original man of a thousand faces of of the silver screen he um, played um the that another no, actor he played the original Frankenstein's monster in the great uh, 1930s it's alive movie, oh, much more than Frankenstein's monster uh, virtually every monster in history, the vampires, werewolves, Frankenstein, he played them all. And um, yeah, as you said, Matt Hagen was much more subtle. He was a t an originally an adventurer, and he appeared in the 1950s in Detective Comics 298. And what his um, deal was, he literally went around the world seeking thrills and came across this puddle of protoplasm, which when he dipped himself into it, he could literally change his form and appearance for 24 hours at a time, but he got hooked on that power. This version that we see of Matt Hagen in this um, brilliant two-parter is exactly as you say, the actor, Basil Carlo, but with the powers of Matt Hagen. And somewhat of the origin of just being somewhat drawn in by this weird shape-changing stuff. And a brilliant way of introducing uh, another arch-nemesis up there with... Um... Oh, blimey. Name the gangster right? dude. From the last Thorn. few episodes, Rupert Thorne, thank you very much. I'm good, I completely went blank then. Another arch nemesis of the animated series to join Rupert Thorne in Roland Daggett, who um, will be a big deal again in later episodes. Was this the first appearance of the name Daggett? Because in my notes I just sort of hearkened this back to the the actor who plays all of the villains from Dark Knight Rises. Exactly that. That villain was named after this, this character. Villain. And this was his first appearance as well. Before yes, Roland long, Daggett is a long before he first appeared in the comics. Oh, yes. yes, absolutely. Roland Daggett is a well. 
Um, Thorn was in the comics first. Daggett is a creation of the animated series. You can count on the animation to have created quite a few surprising but welcome characters, I think. Oh, yes. And when they're played by uh, American TV royalty Ed Asner, um, who I don't need to let fans in America know, Lou Grant and the star of countless movies and TV shows. But what I loved about this story is that we get those classic... Um, main villain henchmen who've got their own little quirky personality traits um, we've got the, the guy who uh, Bell who's always got the headphones on tuned into the police wave and then you've got the other guy who's literally afraid of every bug he's a germaphobe and they call Norman him germs Jones. and they're both played by, again by very well known actors germs um, is uh, Ed Begley Jr who you'll recognise from This Is Spinal Tap. <laughs> but uh, everyone in America obviously will know him from St. Elsewhere and uh, countless, again, other TV shows and movies. But the main attraction in this episode, he's already appeared once as the stony-faced hoodlum with the uh, drill from a few episodes back when, when the story first started. Yes. Ron Perlman is back, but this time he's the mainstay, the focus... Matt Hagen himself, and who better to play an actor of a thousand faces than an actor, an actor of a thousand faces? Because if I'm not mistaken, um, obviously people in our sort of sphere would know him very best as uh, Hellboy. Absolutely. I personally remember his great voice work for being the antagonist towards another great slice of TV DC animation, mm -hmm. the Deathstroke in the uh, oh, in the Titans TV Titans TV yes. show. But this was very early for what. Ron Perlman was doing as far as like oh, people yeah. would know him. This was well before Blade 2, surely? Uh, 92. That's a very good question, actually. I didn't think about Blade because that's, yeah, he was in that as well. But he sounds younger, but again, there's an you voice. can hear the range in his voice, and he's just amazing. And what else is amazing is the way they've captured his quirks, his voice, and the way he focuses his pain and rage and anguish, he can go from soft, subtle and well-spoken when he's with his with his buddy, Teddy, who played brilliantly by Dick Goltier, who seems like much more than just a rodeo or, or someone helping out. They, they feel like partners in, in every sense. Yeah, I would say And that. it's a lovely, lovely thing to see. But Ron Perlman, where, where else can I go? The guy's just legendary. Obviously, I love him from things as random as... Um, Alien Resurrection and of course Hellboy but um, he's a favourite of Guillermo del Toro one of my all time favourite movie directors and he appears in virtually everything Guillermo's done including um, including Pan's Labyrinth and everything else so it's it's brilliant to see him but um, what do you make of our hero Batman in this episode? I found it particularly noteworthy that Batman himself takes a long time to show up and mm. stay consistently on the screen throughout the first half, at least. I because the way the episode that episode was framed up was really just very powerful. We got that great sweeping action sequence that pulls you in immediately, Absolutely. where we don't know what's up and who to trust, and they make the wonderful point of being able to sum up who Dagger is what Lucius Fox is doing there, why it's dodgy, and it's information that we as the viewers need, but it's not forced on us. 
It almost is. Yes. But it's then segued into the overall heavy action of the rest of the scene to just be like, okay, something else is deeper going on here. I knew immediately that that wasn't Bruce Wayne because he wasn't in the dodgy brown suit. So <laughs> but no, that's it. That's exactly why we knew. That's to, to, to throw us off balance. It sounds like Bruce. Is it? It looks Bruce? like Bruce. But why is he hiding in the shadows? And that's not what Bruce wears. But it's, it's little subtle genius points like that. But I love that when he does appear, he's the archetypal Batman. He comes in like a figure of the night. He swings into action and he's a shadow and everyone's afraid of him. But he's also, by the end of the episode, when he goes to take down Hagen, it's not using violence or fisticuffs. He uses it, he tries to take it down psychologically by showing him all the faces he's worn before and showing him, listen, you are an actor, you can be that again, and trying to save him. Because of the, because in, before that encounter, he had only ever seen the figure of Clayface before when he very openly, verbally denies that name. He just says, Matt Hagen's gone, I am Clayface. He's making himself into a monster. He's trying to save this man by reminding him that he was a man once and could be a man again. Unfortunately, that doesn't quite pan out for him and we feel for Batman in the end. That's why even when the case is all wrapped up, he's still there in the back here trying to understand the science behind what he is and what went wrong. So we can see that this is just another angle that Batman's working as a hero to try and redeem someone that most people would otherwise write off for being monstrous. Yeah, well said. And like you say as well, the trying to work out the origins of, of how this has happened. And honestly, this origin of Clayface is probably my favourite. In terms of the way it's handled, it's a brilliant way of introducing Daggett, but that Renew You Cream is much more realistic than a pool of glowing goop found in a cave that he has to dip himself into. Plus the whole thing about addiction, the whole thing about how it's one thing putting it on your face, but then being forced to, to swallow yeah, gallons of the stuff changes him from the inside. And obviously, like with all medicines, they say, for external use only and whatever else <laughs> makes you wonder oh god what happens if I do swallow this medicine and I shouldn't also unfortunately Batman's Rose Gallery does have somewhat of an abundance of warm liquid goo face mm -hmm. between the Joker going pale and the Lazarus Pit yep so <laughs> it's a it's a nice refresher to get uh, something different it's a nice refresher to get something different and it's a little bit more scientifically feasible if anything in comics or cartoons ever could be I guess but it just makes more sense to me. It's, it's a brilliant updating of a classic 40s, 50s, mad Batman, ultra science, science fiction trope. And I think it was very, very well handled. It really, really was. We get um, this way of doing things is, I think, the best way to have been able to handle both of the characters. Because um, how, uh, how did Basil Carlo get his um, powers? Canonically, Basil Carlo um, originally had none. He literally was just an actor. But during a really brilliant story arc in the nineties called um, Mud Pack, he's tracked down by the fourth Clayface, Lady Clay, who's originally an agent of Cobra, who first appeared in um, Outsiders Twenty One. Um, she develops powers very similar to Matt Hagen's, and he she enlists Basil Carlo, but. All the way, all he wants is to make himself the ultimate clay face. He wants to be the person with the acting ability 
and the shape-shifting ability. And he is the current and ultimate and only real Clayface now. But before um, Lady Clayface was Preston Payne, who suffered from a rare blood disorder and tried to cure himself by using Matt Hagen's blood. But what happened to him was basically that just melted his face. He has to wear a helmet to basically keep yeah. himself stable. But what it did do is whenever he removes these protective um, like armour clothing that kept them together, if he touched you, he literally would cremate you. He'd burn you. He was literally got like molten lava properties of the earth. So it seems like that clay face formula, that gloop, affected different people in different ways. But to do with the earth somehow. Maybe that was just... Um pain was it he sort of like pain, yeah. was um, clay in its raw form while it's still in the earth mm -hmm. and I then so. the as they go forth they just like the clay becomes more solid more malleable so you can be more like molten yeah. magma or more like that scene from ghost it just depends on which state the stone is in yeah, that, that's that's my take, and that's my head canon as well. And Payne appeared also in Detective Comics. Three out of the four Clayfaces had their first appearances in, in Detective Comics. His was 479. But when uh, Basil Carlo got his powers was during that Mud Pack storyline, and he's the one Clayface that Batman did manage to rehabilitate because in recent years, after the rebirth, he actually became one of the Gotham Knights, joined Batman in his crusade against crime, with Batwoman, Tim Drake's Robin, Spoiler, Cassandra Kane, Azrael, they fought kind of together until, um, well, it seemed that his powers went out of control and due to no fault of his own, due to interference from Batwoman's father and a whole bunch of uh, ninjas led by Rachel Ghul, and he had to be taken down and killed to save Gotham after he turned into a gigantic, raging, Godzilla-like clay monster by, by Batwoman. Batwoman had to take him down. But it seems, just like at the end of this episode, his death was faked and he is still out there. I think that's kind of the benefit of a villain like this. Yes. Someone that can twist and shape. And more importantly, we see a lot of this uh, in this version of Clayface, in this story that we just watched. We see the fact that he's able to like self-divide and mm. sort of split into like yeah. smaller little... Wiggly sort of bits of himself, so as long as some bit of that is around, then maybe it can just sort of twist and warp up Absolutely. into another thing. That's how I see it as well. As long as one bit of him survives, yeah. he survives. It's yeah. like his intelligence is spread to any part of him, and that's something that's brilliantly done in the comics as well, where he literally makes a little army of clay faces to help Batman fight the fight, but obviously the more of him there is, the harder they are to control, yep. which again makes more sense, because he's dividing himself up, and... It's just so brilliant. I've, I've got to say the animation in this episode. Did it occur to you, because it's felt this way to me, and I'm willing to argue my case mm. on this, did it seem like, I don't want to have to say the quality, but just the contrast and the, honestly, yeah, the quality of it, somewhat jumped upward between episode one and episode two. Did you see the change in, I don't know, the... Like the level of detailing and the contrast and the frame rate between episode one and episode two. Oh, totally. What was that? I think it's obviously episode one was a complete experiment hmm. and they didn't know how it would work. And when it got aired and when there was test screenings, or whatever else, obviously people lost their minds. And Warner decided to throw more money at it. And I don't know if you know that this first season is over 60 episodes long, it ran for over a complete year. And then you've got 
directors with the talent of Dick Sebast, who directed episode one of the Clayface story, and Kevin Altieri, who we know already is a mainstay and a legend of this show for episode two. They are two directors who've been in animation forever. And obviously the ones that are more experienced is when you can see the difference in the quality. Because there was just subtle detailing in the lighting in episode yeah. two when um, Dagan Jones was walking through the foundry and you just yeah. saw the way that the lights went dim as they were walking through those green vats of stuff. Absolutely. You saw when Dagger was being interviewed and then Clayface bursts out. You see the suddenness but realism of the sweat forming at different parts of his yeah. faces and then starting to shake down. The Just the detail of Clayface himself, just the layers of all of the weird stony stuff and the way it, you can see every little bit of it shift and change whenever he shifted and changed his whole shape or just to twist his arms or his some sort of weapon or something. There was a real jump, yeah. like, noticeable. And honestly, I think that if they were going to have to, like, do an artistic in-house change over the quality of the production, this is honestly an unintentionally perfect place to do it because it shows like an internal change of the yeah. quality going from one scene to another as it's sort of like metamorphosing from just like the test screenings into the final screenings of just like this is the quality we should expect. Yeah, and not only that, this is very much a product of its time. Obviously, this is 1992, and I don't know if you spotted it, but the whole way Clayface moves and changes in the second half is so Terminator 2. <laughs> yeah. I can sort of see it from like the top heavy sort ofness yeah. of him. Like he's like very blocky and like the lip but the legs are still kind of spindly. And the fact that he, yeah, like Terminator 2, like the T one thousand. Yes. Just wandering through uh relentless and just not very clear in his shape. Yeah, I didn't really see that either. That's good. Especially in the end scenes where he's in that room with all the banks of screens and he sees all his faces, all the actors, all the characters he's portrayed, and he shifts between one and the other. It's exactly the same as when the T-1000 is melting right in the, the vat, yeah. and you see him transform into every character whose appearance he's taken over the course of the film. And I don't know if that was a, a conscious decision by Kevin Altieri, but this does show when this movie was made and its influences, and it's so hard to do that level of transformation and motion in, in 2D animation. This was still hand-drawn cartoons. There's yeah. no CGI involved in this. And it looked CGI and it felt CGI. It was that brilliantly yeah. animated. Because we got the, trans uh, the change between like at least like three or four different mm. shapes on Clayface at a given second. So that must have been a real task for the animators. And they did Absolutely. it amazingly. They did it amazingly. And that's another beauty aspect of this show not only is the voice talent astonishing the people who work on animating who, who drew this show and as you said more so in in the second chapter the first one was a lot more world building setting the tone the second one's when everything goes nuts mm. and it's so brilliantly done and again i have to tip my hat to shirley walker's music the one of my favorite characters in a way it's one of my favorite characters in these two episodes yeah. it was through the roof because there were times when it felt like the great great swirling sort of orchestral cinematic pieces yeah. that you'd expect from a villain of the movies you but go. you also get like the quiet subtle tones of just like a man trying to get to grips with his changeable shape mm. it was perfectly done across the whole way it was such richness of detail honestly perfect 
I have to also talk about our friend Bruce Wayne and Batman's real anger and sense of loss because Lucius Fox is one of his best friends, always has been from his appearances in the comics to the movies to, to this series and Kevin Conroy's vocal tics, the pain you felt when he thought Lucius, it's it's me. And literally just letting himself get arrested and trying to clear his own name was just so brilliantly handled. But then you get the whole opposite thing with Batman. And when he captures uh, Bell, Valentine Bell, with the Batwing. Mm. And some of the best Batwing scenes ever. The, the the big ears are there to look cool and look bat-like, but to skewer up a car and have it fly yeah, around, that's what that's actually for. That was so cool. And I've always sort of wondered what the claw was for. <laughs> I feel like we see the claw a bit more. I hope, I think. We have to see the claw more. And the fact that my batwing in my office has got the claw too, and I love it. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Posting fresh pictures on Twitter when this episode goes up, just so that people know what we're talking about. But how mean was Batman I mean that is fear I, that is Batman throwing his power around. I would argue that this is the most vulnerable we've ever seen him yeah because this is a personal thing that is being jeopardised here because he doesn't have a circle he doesn't really trust people Alfred has been there the whole time so his trust is like incorruptible Lucius sure 10 years is a very long time but to see someone switch on a dime like this in a strange place in the middle of the night that will scare your trust out of someone and Bannon didn't ask for that didn't see that coming and didn't want it so him trying to defend the connection he has to this friend someone who supplies him with the various gear and accoutrement that Bannon would have he's justifiably pissed oh yeah and scared yeah and scared I mean like you say brilliantly said well, well spotted this is a Batman close to the beginning of his career he doesn't have that huge circle of trust and friendship and comrades that he develops over the years as we'll see as the show progresses right now all he's really got is Dick who seems to be coming and going from college Gordon who is a confidant but still the rest of the GCPD isn't sure of him um, and of course Alfred yeah Lucius is a business partner this isn't the Lucius Fox of the movies that knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman or anything close to that at this juncture so it's yeah Batman's vulnerable Batman's hurting because a friend of Bruce Wayne's who as much as he may disguise it or say he's not he is a very vital part of Batman's arsenal that escape that way he can take off the mask and be a normal human being for a few hours a day is one of the things I do think keeps Batman sane you have to need that to keep yourself sane especially just to be able to maintain like normal social circles and a sleep pattern because even with the trauma that Batman's been through it's not exactly healthy to continue to go like that and that's the kind of support system that was at Jeopardy here and we're on Batman's side when we see it and it's really satisfying to see him handle it that way as we've always said you and I both not just watching this show but being fans of the character one of the things that makes Batman compelling is the fact that he isn't indestructible he does have his human flaws his human weaknesses 
the way he cares for people, even the villains he's fighting, the amount of times he tries to help them, um, bring them back into society and turn their lives around. And we've seen it a couple of times, obviously, with the uh, Hoodlum and his priest's brother, that every now and then it works. Hmm. But even when it doesn't, it doesn't stop him trying, even with someone as powerful and deadly as Clayface. It's very easy to get mixed up in the idea that Batman's some tortured Avenger, some figure of fear in the night that's out there to lay down justice to those who are wronged and will be flung behind the bars of Bygate Prison and Arkham Asylum. This is the only Batman media that shows him as a redeemer and a mm. reclaimer of someone's soul, and he he tries, and that's the real hero spirit. Yeah. And he does it well enough to show that it's worked enough in enough cases. He's an unexpectedly strong hero, stronger than any of us could have ever really imagined in most other pieces of media for the show I'm off. Well said. Well said. This is the show that, second only to the 81 years of comics, does try to give viewers, give Batman's, every aspect of the character in both his secret identity and as the Cape Crusader, Dark Knight world's greatest detective so for that reason this show is, is timeless and it, it's near perfect in its interpretation and we've only really just started just scratched the surface, we're literally only 21 episodes in so we're about a third of the way through season one, Wow! but all the other seasons are a lot lot shorter but um, I've got nothing to complain about I've loved it. So now we go to, as we do every week, bits that stood out, anything that didn't quite ring true, positives, negatives of the episode. Uh, we've been talking a lot, just in general, about the quality of the animation, and even to someone in the know who can sort of gather the dramatis persona and the title feet of play mm -hmm. to know who the character is, even that most of episode one, just those red tones to the yeah. colour palette, was just like, heavy indicators of you know who's up you know what's coming and that's why it was so key in episode 1 not episode 2 mm. this was the done thing of comparing it to the two-faced two-parter yes this was us being slow walked and led into the origin of this other great villain and we get the foreshadowing of it through that beautiful red colour tone and it was a nice thing to see just to show that they were that the whole world sort of hearkening to this character was showing up and it was a really exciting thing. Couldn't agree more. It's a masterclass in building tension, in character development, because we do see Matt Hagen go f through virtually every emotion possible. I mean, he's already had his car crash and been um, disfigured and trying to find his way back. And Teddy is my favourite character of the two episodes because he is there for Matt um, even to the extent of possibly not doing the right thing by enabling him with the Renew You Cream but because he actually cares about his friend about about the actor to this case where he says listen your best work has happened after the accident and it was so brilliant great pieces of humanity Brilliant supporting characters that make the mainstays, the actual people we watch the show about, shine. sing and shine all the more.
terrific. Another great, great episode. Um, again, how, nothing to say. How can we fault it at this point? Yeah. Even the stranger episodes that we would consider weaker are still a lot better than most other television. Who <laughs> could argue with that? And like you said, I'm really glad you spotted that, that this is like the amalgamation of two different clay faces so that audiences can be caught up. And I think this is the perfect villain villain for it because we've got multiple different villains who have worn this name but they've all mixed together like certain kinds of playwood and this is still one of my all-time favorite versions of one of my all-time favorite buddies matt hagan was my clayface growing up and i'm glad he's the one they used in this show yeah with the clear strong power set and the really evocative sort of background of carla absolutely well said Right, so that's it for another episode. I hope everyone out there has enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoy making it and have gone, you know, how can we not enjoy re-watching these great pieces of TV? And it almost feels fresh because I've got so much more detail and enjoyment out of re-watching them now as a grown man than I really ever thought I would. I've said it, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I remember these very, very little, so I'm going into these almost, almost perfectly, almost perfectly fresh, and it's been a real roller coaster to see Batman at his best in any non-comic book media, honestly. And once again, uh, thanks to everyone who comments and contacts us on social media and on the websites about the show. Uh, honestly, your comments are greatly appreciated. Keep rating, keep reviewing. Let us know your thoughts. And uh, to the people out there who started watching this because of us, thanks so much. That means the world to me. That's what this show's for. I know several people who are watching this for the first time, either on the DC Universe app or on the DVDs, which they've uh, begged us to lend them. So thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. You can catch I Am The Night along with the original DC Comics News podcast and the Spinner Rack all across the DC Comics News Network, which you can find, of course, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. DC Comics News and uh, sister site Dark Knight News, which is more Batman-focused, can be found across the web and on social media from, of course, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr and YouTube. Adam. Where can the world find you? Of course, you can find me reviewing many titles a month on Dark Knight News and DC Comics News. You can find me on Twitter at IzzetTinkerer, I-Z-Z-E-T Tinkerer. You can find me on Twitch, gathering uh, some very dear friends and I to play my one true love, uh, Dungeons & Dragons and other tabletop games, most Tuesday evenings. Well, Tuesday evenings, UK time, of course. And, of course, our... Little Crucible, our love, our points of origin, fantasticuniverses.com, where I write mostly about tabletop games, and most importantly, you can find me out of the dark places where you're not looking. Yes. And where can we find you, sir? Um, most of my damage is done across our website, Fantastic Universe, and of course the brilliant DC Comics News and Dark Knight News. To read all that, the easiest thing to do is literally just to go to the search engine of choice and type in the words Steve J. Ray, which will take you to links to all those places, or of course to Fantastic Universes. DC Comics News is on Twitter as well at DC Comics News, capital D, capital C, capital C, O M I C S, capital N E W S. On Twitter, Dark Knight News is DK News.com. And you can find me on Twitter 
at Elstevo, E-L underscore S-T-E-E-V-O. It's been a joy to talk to everybody. Please, please, please keep those comments coming. But in the meantime, Adam, there's something that our listeners really need to do, isn't they it? They need to read more comics. And watch more Batman. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.